Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains, and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. G'day, welcome back to With You Every Step. Hope you've settled into 2019 just nicely. Today I have Alexis Marsh joining us. Alexis has a passion for being out on the ocean and her passion ended up finding her with Sea Shepherd. So today she's going to talk all about her personal experience with Sea Shepherd. Welcome Alexis. I'm really happy to have you on with you every step today. Thanks so much, Michelle. It's awesome to be here. Now let's give my listeners a bit of your background. So currently, how old are you? I'm 36. Okay, so you're not far off my age. I want to know where your love of travel started and kind of what was your first adventure? Oh, it's a good question. So I suppose my love of travel started once I finished high school. I mean, I always used to do little trips with my friends in high school, but when I was 19, my uh, best friend and I went over to Malaysia and travelled through Malaysia and part of Thailand. And we were just, yeah, in love with the freedom that we had and the different culture that we experienced. Were you backpacking? Yes, yes, backpacking. How long were you away for? Uh, that trip was only three weeks and then I returned and finished, uh, did university. And then I think four friends and I went overseas for a year, around the world trip for a year in when we were about 25. So you were with four friends? Yes. Yes. So two of us traveled together for most of the year and another two of my friends sort of met us over in the UK for about seven months of that. Okay. Now on previous episodes, I have spoken about traveling with friends and how it can be amazing or it can be a disaster. Was it amazing or was it a disaster? It was amazing. We're all still best friends to this day. And we came home and still live together, surprisingly. It was funny in the UK because of how expensive rent was. We were sharing two double beds between four of us in one room for six months. <laughs> wow. Okay. So it worked really well for you. That's good because there are a lot of disaster stories out there. Really, I've got a couple. Yes. But I'm glad that it worked <laughs> for you. <laughs> so in that year, where did you go? We travelled, what did we do? We had, I think, two or three months of travel to begin with where we went through Eastern Europe and also to parts of Greece and Italy and then lived and worked in the UK for about six or seven months and did like little weekend trips out into Europe thanks to Ryanair's one euro flights to Ireland to where else did we go? Denmark and Sweden and anywhere we could get our hands on. And then on the way home, my best friend and I did two months traveling through Canada, America and South America, New Zealand, and then home. So it was a pretty epic trip. Yeah, certainly one that I'll never forget. And so that got you excited about travel, hey? And then you just didn't want to stop. Exactly. And then from there, every few years, I've sort of gone off on a two or three month trip. You know, as most people these days understand how amazing travel is and how it opens your mind and broadens your horizons. So it's something that I feel is a very integral part of my life that I always want to do. Yeah. And you also have a love of being on the ocean. I do. So in my late 20s, early 30s, I've spent a lot of time at sea. Yeah. Now, how did that start? Now, I, I talk about this all the time. I get really bad seasickness. So the thought of it for me, oh, no, it's not something that makes me want to go out and be on a boat for months at a time. I've done a small cruise and I, I did okay. But being out for a long time, 
how did you, when was the very first time that you went out on a boat? And it's funny that you bring up the seasickness. My first time out was when I was just before I turned 23, I went on the Young Endeavour, which is an Australian Navy based youth training vessel, basically. And you put your name in a ballot to go on it and you have to be 23 or under. So I just snuck in. I was on there and we were out. It was really rough. And of the 26 crew on board, there was only five of us that didn't get seasick. And we had the biggest smiles on our faces. We were up there in the wind and the rain and the waves were crashing over the top of us. And we just thought it was the best thing we'd ever experienced. And that's when I discovered my superpower of not getting seasick. And my whole family gets sick in a bathtub. Like it's, you know, they, they don't have this ability or this iron stomach or whatever it is. I don't know where it comes from, but I, I have never in the three years that I've spent out at sea since then, I've never gotten seasick. And it's the biggest blessing because it allows me to travel the oceans, you know, without that horrible consequence. Yeah. And it's awful. It's so debilitating. You can't look, you can't do anything. All you want to do is be sick. It's the worst feeling. So Even in really, I'm assuming you've been in the roughest of seas and you've never been sick. Correct. Yep. Very, very lucky. I think there was one time where I was chopping onions down below and it was pretty rough outside. I was making a vegetarian lasagna and it was going all over the place and I felt a little bit queasy. And I came up up above to look out at the horizon. But other than that, like I see people seasick in the corridors and I'll be stepping over them to go do my exercise. And yeah, it looks pretty horrible. <laughs> I feel bad for them. <laughs> well, I guess it just means that's where you're meant to be. You're meant to be out on the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And look, hats off to those people that still keep going out there and still get seasick. They're the real warriors because if I got seasick, there's no way you'd find me out there. No, no, I I don't do it. Not very often. If I do, I take travel calm to to settle my stomach, but then it knocks me out. So even on the cruise ship I went to, I I got, I was starting to feel sick. So I took a travel calm and then I missed the whole show that we went to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Just slept through it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what happens. People get sick. They take these pills and then they're, they're completely out to it. And, you know, it's especially in, in certain roles on the ships that I work on, you know, people do get seasick and they can't take those pills because otherwise they can't do their job. So they just have to suffer through it. Oh, that sounds horrific to me. But yeah, you yeah. can't, you can't have people not working, not doing their That's jobs. Right. Yeah. So this young endeavor, can you explain a little bit more about that? Did they teach you what to do? Yeah, so basically it's just about getting a bunch of young people on a on a tall ship, a replica of Captain Cook's Endeavour vessel, and they teach you over a period of 10 days how to sail the vessel, how to take command, how to navigate, and basically just how to kind of look after yourselves and work together in a team in difficult environments, I suppose, in challenging circumstances. And it was it was brilliant. It was really good. Everybody, you know, shines and it brings out the best in people because you have to work together and you have to bring your best efforts to the forefront. Otherwise, you know, the ship's not getting anywhere and your crewmates suffer. Yeah. I highly recommend that for young people or people that are, yeah, under the age of 23. I think you have to be over 16. I'd have to double check that. But it's a brilliant way to get young people active, motivated and, yeah, and challenged. And so you're out at sea for 10 days straight? Yes. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, I think we went from Cairns to Hamilton Island, which sounds lovely, but it was actually, yeah, pretty intense. And we had one moment where we took a small dinghy to a nearby island and there's crocodiles in those waters, as you probably know. And a, a wave washed through half of us overboard. And I thought I heard someone say, swim. So I start swimming towards this island thinking, oh my God, I've got a crocodile chasing me. I've got a crocodile chasing me. <laughs> and uh, I know. And then I look back and there's everyone on the dinghies like, come back come back and I so I turn around and I start swimming back to it and they lift me on board they were like what were you doing and I said I thought you said to swim for the mainland (laughs) or the island or whatever anyway so very exciting times luckily I have all my limbs uh still to tell the story with but yeah fantastic adventure yeah so I have a lot of international listeners so they probably don't understand that there are crocodiles up in far north Queensland and like you said they are out they don't go all the way out in the ocean though do they they're kind of close to the beaches they're closer to the beaches yeah so I was probably relatively safe although I was only a few hundred meters away so there was there was a possibility they were there but they didn't get me this time that's good I hope they never do (laughs) (laughs) so you have also been on a ship or boat I I I really struggle with boat and ship yeah okay so the difference is that a ship can carry boats but a boat can't carry a ship so ships are bigger and they're able to put for example on the ships I work on we can crane small boats they're called or ribs uh, rigid inflatable vessels onto our boat but you cannot crane a ship onto a boat does that make sense so yeah yeah, ships are bigger than boats basically yeah (laughs) okay oh that's that's a good example I will always remember that now nice good yeah well thank you for that tip so you've worked on a ship that I think is amazing because I I support them I follow them and to be honest, it's because of you that I found out about them and you work with Sea Shepherd. Oh, I didn't know that, Michelle. Yeah. Yeah, that's very nice. Yes, I do. I work with Sea Shepherd. I have done for the last three years, actually. Okay. Can you explain a little bit about what Sea Shepherd is for a lot of people that don't know who Sea Shepherd are? Yeah, sure. It's a it's a conservation organisation, but we're basically focused on marine conservation and the marine environment. Uh, now, it's pretty important for me to state when I'm doing interviews or talking to the media or whatnot that anything I say is my personal opinion. And it's all talking about my personal experiences on board as a volunteer and a crew member for Sea Shepherd. So I'm not an official spokesperson. I don't speak on behalf of Sea Shepherd or anything like that. So I'm rather, you know, a passionate employee, a passionate supporter and somebody who's, you know, got a story to tell, but not, uh, not my views don't necessarily represent Sea Shepherd's views. Yeah, great. And so the kind of things Sea Shepherd actually do, for a lot of people that don't know, they go out and they kind of protect the ocean, right? Correct, yeah. So we we aim to protect the marine wildlife that in the oceans as well as the uh, marine environment through, you know, promoting, you know, plastic pollution and various other things that are happening in our waterways. We're primarily, we've got ships all over the world. So we do have an Australian Sea Shepherd, we've got Sea Shepherd USA, and we've got Sea Shepherd Global, which, you know, for most people, Sea Shepherd is just represented, you know, as Sea Shepherd. But there are a lot of people involved all around the world, which is really exciting because obviously our oceans are all connected globally and what happens in one ocean directly affects what happens in another. 
I know a lot of people in the US weren't aware what Sea Shepherd was. I wore my hoodie on my big travels that I just went on and I got asked by so many people, what's Sea Shepherd? I was like, you've never heard of them? They're like, no. I'm like, you need to look them up. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like, you know, you can go to some countries and you'll see Sea Shepherd t-shirts everywhere. Like Australia is massive with Sea Shepherd. I think because we've had the Antarctic campaigns down here for so long, whereas other countries, they they don't know who, who you're talking about. So yeah, it's interesting, the different reach. It does have a pretty massive brand awareness though in a lot of countries, which is excellent. You know, it's a very recognizable logo right across the world, which is great. Because mm, it is such a good logo as well. Yeah, it's gnarly, huh? Hey? <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> so how did you start with Sea Shepherd? When I was, oh, I'm trying to think how old I was, maybe 2012 or 2011, I actually volunteered with a vessel called Humanitarian Vessel Vega, which was an old tall ship. I realized after the young endeavor that I loved tall ships. So I sought out some more sailing opportunities and found this humanitarian vessel that was sailing around Indonesia. And they were assisting isolated communities with medical and school supplies. So I I sailed with them for three months in 2012 and three months in 2013 or 2011, 2012. I don't know. It all rolls into one. And when I got back from that, I realized that For me to live my life, I felt like I needed to give back to the oceans, be on the oceans at least three months every year. In 2013, I got involved with an activist group called the Freedom Flotilla to West Papua, and we sailed up the the east coast of Australia towards West Papua to raise awareness about the Indonesian occupation of West Papua, which is still going on to this day, unfortunately. What is that? I don't know what that is. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. I can. It's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. So, yes, I can. No, go for it. I love hearing this history. This is what we want. (laughs) Okay, cool. There's West Papua, which is right next to Papua New Guinea, to the west of Papua New Guinea. And in the 60s, it was uh, occupied by Indonesia, basically. The Dutch, I think, used to colonize it and they gave it back. They gave it its independence in the 1960s, I think. I might have the date slightly wrong. And then Indonesia came in and took, took control of it, basically, and took over it. And since then, the Indonesian army has been basically performing a genocide on the West Papuan people for the last, you know, 50 years or more and killed many, many, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of West Papuans. And it's it's a pretty bad situation. Mm. I joined up with this activist group, Freedom Flotilla to West Papua, and used my sailing skills to assist them to get their vessels, their flotilla up towards West Papua. Yeah, that was pretty, pretty intense and pretty amazing. And that was 2013. Okay. So you did that for three months? I did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then I was sort of like, okay, well, what do I do now? I was going back. I'm an event manager by day, <laughs> sailor by night. And I had a friend say to me, you know, I'd kind of fallen in love with the ocean, obviously, and everything that, that was involved with it. And they said, why don't you join Sea Shepherd? It really seems like something that would fit with you and is part of your ethics and morals. And I said, oh, that's a bloody great idea. <laughs> I contacted Sea Shepherd and I'd already had obviously sailing experience. I had started my basic entry-level navigation qualifications called a coxswain's. They said, absolutely, we'd love your experience and you come on as soon as possible, basically. 
So they're always looking for volunteers? Mm. Yeah, they are. I think back in the day, they used to have a show called Whale Wars. That was on Animal Planet and it was huge. It was a really massive show and it was about Sea Shepherd was going against the Japanese whaling fleet in Antarctica and it was, you know, high drama TV show. So a lot of people were applying. I think they were getting thousands of applications a week when that TV show was on and it was in the forefront of people's minds. Whereas now that that TV show has finished and there's this perception that Shepherd gets thousands of applications and you'd be very lucky to get on board, but it's not the case anymore. We do need more volunteers. And we certainly, we have, I think, 12 or 13 ships around the world. So crewing that many ships is a really hard job. And so the more people we can have volunteering, the more chance we're going to find the people we need with the availability that we need. So after this interview, if anybody is interested in in volunteering, I would hugely encourage you to do so. Don't think that it's not possible because it is. Yeah, okay. I'm going to put the link to Sea Shepherd in the description of this episode as well so you will be able to find it. But like Alexis said, there are Sea Shepherds in different countries. So if you're all around the world, just look for the Sea Shepherd that's closest to you. Yeah, exactly. And when you apply, you know, you could get asked to go to the other side of the world to start a campaign. I could apply as an Australian to Sea Shepherd USA and I could fly over to Mexico and join their campaign or they could have somebody from Europe flying to Australia or vice versa. Okay, so it doesn't matter where you are, you can go anywhere. Correct, yeah. Okay, well, that's good. It's a good way to travel. It is. It's an amazing way to travel, one of the best ways. So you rang them and they said, yep, we'd love to have you. How long was the first time you were out for? Yeah, so I just submitted my online application and then um, they got in contact and I was out for five months was the first time, five months straight. Wow. Okay, it's a long time, isn't it? It is a long time. Usually we ask for about a three-month minimum commitment from people. Our campaign ended up going for longer because we ended up chasing a vessel all the way to China from the South Indian Ocean, which we can talk about if you like. Yeah. So it ended up going for an extra two months longer than we all anticipated and that happens as well. So people with open, more open availability are more attractive as well. Mm. So what happens at that point if you said, I can't stay on? Depending on where we are, they might say, all right, everybody, next port we are going to arrive at is Jakarta. If anybody has to leave, then please let us know. And then they organize more crew to come and meet us in Jakarta and swap people out. Okay. Yeah. So it is possible, but it's preferable if you can stay and do the whole thing. Yeah, correct. Unless you're in Antarctica, then you have to be in for the whole thing because we don't stop anywhere. (laughs) There's nowhere down there to stop. (laughs) You're in the middle of nowhere. Gosh, I'm just getting these visualizations of the things you must have seen. Yes, yes, I have. It's it's amazing. Like when I talk to people like you and talk about Sea Shepherd, I really do like just feel so blessed to have seen all the things I've seen and done all the things I've done because you do kind of forget a lot of the stuff as well, uh, which is why it's important to for me. Like I love life writing, so I document a lot of this stuff in little books and little presentations and things that I can then look back at when I'm older, remember all of the small details. Yeah, it's important to keep it all documented. You don't want to lose it because unfortunately our memories start to fade. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they do. Yeah. So the one, the first time that you went out, you were out for five months. What was the kind of work that you were actually doing? The first campaign I went out on was called Operation Driftnet. And basically we'd had reports of a fleet of Chinese vessels acting suspiciously 
in the area where the MH370 went down. That's that Malaysian Airlines flight that disappeared in the Indian Ocean. Yeah. And yeah. And so we had some other sort of informants, I suppose you might want to call them, telling us that there was some there was some unusual activity. And they said, look, they could either be searching for parts of the vessel, of the aeroplane, or what looks like they're kind of doing a fishing pattern out there. So we snuck up on them and it was six vessels. And we watched them over a couple of nights, keeping out of visual range. We sent our small boats in to have a look at them with night vision goggles and things like that. And we discovered that they were using drift nets. So it's drift nets are an illegal form of fishing and they've been banned since 1994 just because of their indiscriminate killing style. So it kills everything that it catches, right? Exactly, exactly. So they're legal in the high seas up to a length of 2.5 kilometres, which is ridiculous. But anyway, anything over that is illegal anywhere in the world. And we could see that their nets were far, far longer than two and a half kilometers. And these nets basically hang just under the surface of the water and they hang down like a curtain or like a net, like a curtain basically. And they just drift along with the current, hence the word net. And they just catch absolutely everything that comes along in their path and strangles it basically to death. Yeah. Okay. So we approached them on the next day. Once we knew that we had them for something, we approached them. And when they saw us, they freaked out and they cut the net in half that they were currently hauling in. They cut that net in half and they just took off. So there were six vessels and they'd all taken off because they saw us coming in. But that left over five kilometers of net in the water that we couldn't just leave there because that becomes a ghost net that will go on killing life forever. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so we had pull in that net and we basically didn't have any proper hauling gear. So something that a net that might take them a couple of hours to pull in took us three days. We were on 24-hour work. We were doing shifts of four hours on, four hours off, all of the crew. And it took us three days to haul in that net. And it was really quite distressing what we found in there. So just in that five kilometers of net, there was over 250 sharks, um, predominantly blue sharks. So these are already being killed by the time you're lifting them up? Well, out of those sharks, actually, 19 of them were alive, were still oh, alive. Lucky. Yeah, so we put them back in, but they were pretty badly damaged, so I don't know how many of those 19 would have actually survived. But each time that we found a live one, the whole crew would come around and we'd all put it back in together and everybody would just feel a little bit better about mm. this horrible situation. There was also a hundred schooling fish. There was a huge marlin, you know, those um, swordfish. Yeah. There was 10 critically endangered tuna, which is probably what they were going after. So you think of, you know, there was over 300 animals and only 10 of their target species. It's pretty messed up. There was two seals in there that we'd seen playing around the day before and, um, and also a dolphin. So it just catches everything. Oh, even the really big animals. Yeah, yeah, and whales get caught up in them as well. Luckily, we didn't have any at this time. But, yeah, it just it doesn't. It's indiscriminate. So whatever's there, it'll catch. So that was pretty sad. Then from there, we wanted to catch up with these guys, obviously. We had enough motivation. We wanted to go and catch them. And luckily for us, one of them had accidentally left a beacon on, which we could track. (laughs) Whoever did that, I'm sure, got in a lot of trouble afterwards. It's like, Barry, who left the beacon on? (laughs) (laughs) 
we had a lot of jokes about that. We were like, oh, Barry's in trouble. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Barry's been sacked. <laughs> <laughs> but thank God, because it meant we could find them. Um, so they'd left it on using, we tracked them on automatic identification system, AIS, and, and we caught up with them. And yeah, we chased them all the way to China, which took us over a month. And when they got back to China, we handed all of the evidence and information over to the Chinese government and they arrested them, that whole fleet, which was amazing. That's fabulous. Yeah, the the Driftnet fleet was detained indefinitely. All of the captain's licenses were stripped permanently, which is a huge deal. It takes decades to get your captain's tickets. The company itself was fined 900,000 US dollars and the entire company was suspended from fishing. Good. Epic, yeah. Good. It's amazing work that you guys do. So you actually had to physically by hand pull up the net? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of gloves, lots of exhausted crew, lots of blood, lots of fish. It was, yeah, it was pretty horrendous. But, I mean, that just shows you how far Sea Shepherd goes to make sure that they protect what they need to protect. Absolutely. And in a campaign the year before, the Sam Simon had pulled in over 72 kilometres of net. Oh, my gosh. By hand as well? By hand. It took them weeks and weeks and weeks of painstaking work. And where does it go once you've got it on deck? We keep it on deck. And actually, the net that we got from Driftnet and from Antarctica went to Adidas and they made shoes out of it. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) So it got recycled, which was awesome. That's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. And they gave all of the crew members from the uh, Sam Simon got a pair of the runners, I believe. That is very cool. Yeah. (laughs) So there's happy stories at the end of it, you know, and people do get involved. If someone starts to do the right thing, other companies and other organisations do get on board, which is great. That's good. And what other work were you doing during that first, what do you call it, first? And we call it a campaign. Yeah, okay. On that campaign, I was third officer. Actually, I think I was a quartermaster. So I joined the ship as a quartermaster, which basically means I'm working with an officer on the bridge. And that's where I learned a lot about navigating a large vessel and navigating in crowded waters and whatnot. And during that campaign, I got promoted to third officer. So I had my own watch, uh, which means that you're steering and navigating the ship for eight hours a day. Wow, that's a huge responsibility. It is, it is. And especially in those waters around Southeast Asia and went through some pretty crowded waters, the the navigation is extreme because you've got collision regulations that tell you who's got right of way and who should be doing what and all the rest of it. But in those waters, a lot of the vessels don't pay any attention to those rules and regulations. You've got to be just on high alert 24-7. Yeah, it's exciting, but a big responsibility because you've got 34 crew that are down below that are relying on you not to hit anything, you know, obviously. Yeah, we don't want a Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you've got to be on. And, I mean, all the roles on the ship are quite intense like that because obviously the engineers have to keep the engine running because if the engine stops running and we're in a storm and we go side on, we go beam on, the ship's in a lot of trouble. Mm. The cooks have to make sure that the food keeps the crew motivated. It's one of the main things that we all look forward to every day is the amazing vegan food on board. You've got the deck team, which are the ones that go out and do a lot of the dangerous activities they're the ones on the small boats that are going out doing these night missions trying to if you if you're a small vessel and your 
creeping up on a larger vessel in the middle of nowhere, you know, what's to say they're not going to think you're pirates and start to shoot at you? Like these are the real critically, I suppose, dangerous things that Sea Shepherd does to try and protect the marine wildlife out there. And these crew are are putting their their time, their hearts and their lives on the line to achieve that. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And so you mentioned vegan food. Does Does that mean everyone is vegan that's on board? You don't have to be vegan to join Sea Shepherd. Once you're on board, if you're out on active campaign, then that's what you'll be given is beautiful three meals a day plus dessert and snacks is all vegan food. So Sea Shepherd, um, yeah, we're all 100% vegan on board mm-hmm. and all of our products and everything are ocean marine safe, grey water safe products as well. So we're not doing anything to harm the marine environment as we travel through it ideally as much as possible anyway. Yeah, we do have crew members that live in live on the ship's but might be in port that might go off and eat meat when they've got time off. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't say no to those crew at all. But once you're on the ships, if you would like to partake of the food on board and you're asked not to bring any meat or any animal products on board as well. I think that's fair enough. That's just the way it is. And like you said, they're fine if they want to go off and do their own thing when they're off the ship. But on the ship, that's the way it is. It sounds like the food is amazing. Yeah, it is. And and that was instigated, I think it was 10 or 12 years ago now by one of the cooks, Laura, who, who started the whole thing about Sea Shepherd being vegan. And I think now it's really one of our cornerstones that I'm certainly really, really proud of. And I think it really gives us that integrity as a, as a marine organisation. Mm. Okay. So then your next campaign after that, so did you come back and decide that you wanted to go straight back out or did you have some time back on land? I had said to my job at the time, which was event manager management, that I was just going to take three months off and do this little sabbatical trip. They were very supportive, which was beautiful of them. And after three months, I met, you know, emailed them or called them. I said, I'm going to be another month. And then after that month, I was like, I'm going to be one more month. <laughs> I'm in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get the boat home. And so by the time I got back, I'd been gone five months, as I said, and I still had to do my events that I'd committed myself to. So I stayed back at that job for six more months, finished all of my events. And then I just felt like I was in a twilight zone sitting back in an office after being out at sea chasing pirates. Yeah. I couldn't do it anymore. So I, after that, I quit that full-time job and joined Sea Shepherd full-time. So that was December 2016, I think it was, is when I joined Sea Shepherd full-time and went down to Antarctica on Operation Nemesis. Being full-time, does that mean you're still volunteering? Yes, I was still volunteering for that campaign. I was hoping for, there are a few paid positions in Sea Shepherd. Most of the crew though, 90% of the crew are volunteers. So yeah, for that campaign, I was still volunteering and I just had my fingers crossed that maybe a paid position would come up to allow me to do it 100% of the time all throughout the year after that. Yeah, which is what ended up happening. I got offered a management role for the new ship, the Ocean Warrior, back in Fremantle after the Antarctic campaign, which was amazing. Oh, can you talk a little bit about that Antarctic campaign? Yeah, I can. Sea Shepherd is probably most well known for these campaigns, which is against the Japanese whaling fleet in Antarctica in the Southern Ocean. And each year the Japanese whaling fleet go down to the Southern Ocean and they say they are uh, conducting scientific research and killing. They used to kill about a thousand whales down there. And over the years, Sea Shepherd has harassed them to the point that they've reduced that to only minke whales and only 333. Australia did take the fleet, the Japanese fleet, to court 
in 2014 to the International High Court and the High Court ruled that it was not scientific research and that what they were doing was actually illegal. Mm -hmm. So in 2015, the fleet did not go down to Antarctica and that's when Sea Shepherd went down and did a different campaign called Operation Icefish. But in 2016, they they rewrote their their research uh, targets and I suppose created a loophole in the court's decision and said, oh, no, this is new research. We're going to go down and research this. So this is not illegal. What do they do with the whales they kill? So basically, yeah, so basically the research that they're doing, they're saying it has to be lethal because the only way to find out the age of a whale is to measure or to look at its, I think it's called a cochlear ear or or a part in their inner ear. And you can only get to that if you kill the whale. So they say they have to kill the whale. It has to be lethal research so they can determine the age. And then they have hundreds of papers online about all different things, but really Part of their research states that they can utilise the byproduct of the research, and that's the whale meat. So in actual fact, they sell the whale meat, and that's what we believe they're going in it for. And the scientific research is the byproduct of the whale meat sales, if that makes sense. Okay. So then do they eat it? Yes. some, okay. But apparently many Japanese people don't want to eat the whale meat. It's full of mercury. It's not good for them. So there's a lot of research saying that they've got stockpiles of this whale meat in Japan That because people, especially the younger Japanese generation, they don't want to continue whaling and they're not eating the whale meat, whereas the older generations, it was part of their history, so they're more likely to consume it. But that's what's been confusing. If nobody's eating it, why keep spending all this money to come down and catch it? Mm. I don't know. I don't have the answers. It's certainly something that we've all pondered a lot on and there's a lot of different theories and ideas you can Google and have a look at. But in 2016, they went down to kill their quota of 333 minke whales. And so we followed them down there. Uh, And this time we had the Ocean Warrior, which was a vessel that was donated by the Dutch Postcode Lottery, which was incredible. They donated the money for the vessel in the hopes that it would be a vessel that could run the harpoon vessels, which in the past had found us and then tailed us and reported our position to the factory ship. What does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, I don't understand what that means. Yeah, it's it's a bit confusing. So the, in the fleet, the Japanese fleet that goes down there to kill the whales, you've got the Nishin Maru, which is the factory ship. And that's the ship that the whales get dragged up onto and get cut up into little pieces and packaged. They've got a whole production system on board. Okay. So that's the one they don't want you to find. Exactly. That's the one we're trying to find because if we can get onto the slipway, so onto the back of that ship where they pull the whales up, if we can get and sit right behind them, then they can't get any whales up on there. So that's the vessel that we have to find to stop them. And in the past, when we've found that vessel and gotten right behind it, they've given up and they've gone home. Okay. All right. But you've got these other harpoon vessels that are out there and A few of them are dedicated to just killing whales, but they've also got ones that are trying to find us. And they are basically, if they find us, they then sit on our tail and report our location to the mothership, to the factory ship, and then she stays out of our way. Okay, gosh, it's very complex, isn't it? And it's it's also very much a cat and mouse game. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's a real oceanic cat and mouse game. We're trying to find them before they find us. And if they find us, then they'll tell them. And oh my God, it's crazy. (laughs) I can imagine it being quite exciting though. 
is exciting. It is. It's really exciting, you know, especially when we have the wins, when we find one of their vessels before they find us. Everybody is just in this sense of elation. It, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think from memory, I think I remember seeing some kind of articles about actually finding the ship and it wasn't the whales that they had said. Is that right? So we found the factory ship, the Nishin Maru, with our helicopter on this one particular day. We got footage or photos of them with a whale on the deck. And the big deal about that was that that was the first image that anybody had of the fleet whaling since the International High Court ruling had said that it was illegal. Oh, so that's why it was all over the news. Okay, I remember seeing it everywhere. Yeah, and it was funny because we got the photo first of the actual minky whale on the deck and then a couple of minutes later they pulled this tarp over the top of it and put weights around the whale. So it was a whale-shaped tarp on the the deck and we were like, like, guys, we can still tell there's a whale under there. (laughs) (laughs) There was a few cartoonists that made some pretty funny images of that. We were like, oh, I wonder what's under the tarp. (laughs) (laughs) it was great yeah so we found it with the helicopter and the helicopter reported the location to us on that we were on the steve Irwin, which is a slower vessel and unfortunately that day or two days before the ocean warrior had run out of fuel and had headed towards tasmania to refuel if the ocean warrior had have been there that day and had have got those coordinates, they could have gone over 30 knots straight to that location. In the meantime, the Steve Irwin could have caught up because we can only do, you know, just over 10 knots. We would have caught up and been able to sit on that slipway and we would have had them, you know. Mm. But because the ocean warrior had just gone to Tasmania to refuel, the Steve Irwin, we tried, we we put both engines on, we hammered it for a couple of almost two days straight at that location, trying to guess which way they might turn. But in the meantime, one of those harpoon vessels had come straight for us and then they were on our tail for the next month and we just couldn't find the factory ship again. Wow. Yeah, we had a couple of close calls, but we just didn't find them. We don't allow the crew to write any identifying information in emails. All of their emails are screened. There's absolute radio silence. We have secret ways to get messages between the ships and between land. Like we do everything we can to try and find these people and these vessels and it just it just didn't happen so then I think you know Japan announced that they'd caught their quota and we're heading home and that's when we had to hang up our hats and head back home pretty pretty sad yeah it is a shame but speaking of radio silence so that means you could be out there for five months with no Netflix right <laughs> that's true but we do have a lot of movies on board <laughs> but no netflix i got pretty used to not having you know facebook and insta and all of those things it's actually really nice not to have those things around yeah nice and cleansing so that is the thing though if you do go out there you are basically in radio silence depending on the campaign some campaigns are less secretive than others but some of them yet yeah, absolutely the crew won't have access to the internet and and will have all of their communications read before it's sent so not even a, a phone call to home not if we're out in the middle of the ocean because you'd have to use a satellite phone which would be too expensive yeah 
obviously the crew, there are ways for uh, land contact crew if they need to, if there's an emergency at home. And then in certain campaigns, we're close enough to the shore for people to be able to get internet on their own phones. But generally, then we just ask them, you know, don't post anything on Facebook. Don't say where we are. We're all here together trying to work for the same cause. So respect the rules. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking more, like you said, if there was an emergency, how do you find out? But there is ways. Yeah, yeah. So they can all give their family an emergency contact number and whatnot. Yeah. And their family's emails that get sent in aren't read. It's just what goes out as well. Oh, okay. So they read all the emails that you're going to send home. But if your family wants to write to you, they can put anything in there to give you updates on what's happening at home. Yeah, exactly. And the only reason we read the ones that go out or the communication officer does is to take away anything that might identify where we are. Crew are asked not to write anything about, oh, I was seasick or, oh, I saw this particular bird or I saw a whale, you know, or it was really sunny today. All of those things can identify where our vessel is. Oh, of course. Something so simple. Yeah, Yeah. I would never have even thought of that. I was thinking more like straight on, you know, we're on this peak of this section or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. They think they're doing the right thing, but they might be giving away our location. So that's why we just have a communication officer quickly read through, delete any little lines that might ID where we are and send it off to their families. Well, it sounds like it's very important that that happens because you don't want... So that also, hold on, that also means that other places must be intercepting, right? So the people that you don't want have the opportunity to intercept? Is that is that the worry? Yeah, that's the concern. So certainly in this IT age, there mm. are there are ways to hack into systems and we're we're dealing with people that have a lot to lose. On the ice fish campaigns, those vessels that were poaching toothfish down in the Southern Ocean were involved in drugs, weapons, human trafficking. It's this really seedy underworld that can be involved in certain aspects of the fishing industry that we're dealing with and potentially disrupting. And they've got a lot to lose by us stopping them from doing what they were doing previously unstopped. So if they want to find out where we are so that they can keep their vessels out of our way, they'll they'll go to, to great lengths to do that. Yeah, I, I did not even think about that. I didn't think of all of those other things that they're doing. I'm just thinking of, you know, people illegal fishing, really. And so it's interesting yeah. to see that, yeah, of course, there is this whole other world out in the oceans that us on land here might not be aware of. It's incredible. That's what's really opened my eyes over the last three years. It's like the high seas, which is the area of the world's oceans that's not governed by any particular country. So they're outside of our country's jurisdictions. And it's like the Wild West and anything goes out there. And the conditions that these fishermen and women are put in are really horrific. A lot of them don't want to be there, aren't getting paid anything. They're pretty much slaves. Their families back home may have been threatened. They are sleeping on bits of cardboard. Some of the vessels that I've been on and you see what they, uh, how they're treated. Some of them are getting beaten. They might not get fed for several days. The hygiene on board is non-existent. These people are suffering and a lot of them are working to bring fish to the supermarkets that we're shopping in and nobody knows about the cost of the seafood that they're eating, the true cost. Okay, that's interesting. So these are legal fishing boats that you're talking about? Well, I don't know. I'm just talking in general about the fishing industry. 
Yeah, because that's what I'm thinking, like, the ones in the supermarket is legal fishing, or am I? Well, I I mean, you would hope so, but unfortunately, fish don't come with a barcode, so you don't know where a lot of it's coming from. Like, for example, the Star Shrimper is a vessel that was fishing illegally in Liberia for shrimp, and they're a sustainably certified shrimp company in the United States. And they're fishing illegally. Can you explain to me what sustainable fishing actually means? Well, I don't think it exists because the oceans are so far depleted Mm. that I don't think it's possible at this stage to fish sustainably. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but for me, that term is a load of BS. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't eat seafood. I never have. It's weird. I eat meat, but I can't eat seafood and I never have been able to. I just... I feel bad. I don't like it. I don't like watching people fish. I've never been able to cope with it. A lot of people say, oh, look, I don't eat meat or I'm vegetarian, but I eat seafood. Or a lot of people Which ask me. Which is a me, lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. Or a lot of people ask me, you know, oh, you, but you still eat seafood, right? And I'm like, no, they're animals as well. And in fact, they're in a lot more trouble than a lot of our land animals. Yeah. So if if anything, I'd, I'd eat meat before I'd eat seafood. You know, out there, it's an estimated that between 11 and 26 million tonnes of fish are caught globally every year through illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. So that could be, that could be the food that people just ate at the pub. 40% of what's ending up being sold. And, and because it doesn't have a barcode and most companies, a lot of places don't track back where their fish is coming from, there is absolutely no guarantees that's what's being in our, served in our supermarkets and in our restaurants isn't from this illegal trade. And I know years ago I had to go on this special diet for health reasons and on that diet the dietitian had said to me, you can't eat any seafood. And I said, well, I don't eat seafood anyway. But my mother was in the room and my mother said, why not? Like surely seafood is a better option. And she said no because on a lot of the boats when they take the fish out of the ocean they put it into chemicals. Now do you know anything about that? Yeah. So some of the fish holds that we go into, because we inspect legal and illegal vessels, and some of the legal vessels that we've gone on to inspect, you go down into the fish hold and you can smell the formaldehyde. And that's what they put in dead bodies, right? Yeah, that's what they put dead bodies in to preserve them. So some of these vessels are using formaldehyde to preserve your fish, you know, and then you're eating it. Like it's full on. Yeah, well, that's why she said to me, you can't have it because they were trying to like stop all chemicals from entering my body. And that's what she said. And my mum was like, well, what's chemicals are on fish? And that's what we found out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because they're catching them out at pretty far out to sea. They have to go a lot further than they used to to catch what they used to catch closer in. And so they need some way to, yeah, store it and keep it, you know, looking edible to eat. Do they have like farms where they fish, like fishing farms or something? Yeah, so there, there are fish farms. Yeah, A lot of fish in fish farms are just as bad, if not worse, to eat because they're fed on fish meal, which is ground up pellets made from fish that are caught from the wild, the oceans. And, you know, you might need three kilos of ocean fish to make one kilo of fish meal pellets to then feed two kilos of farmed fish. You know, these are just random numbers. Yeah, yeah. But it's not necessarily a better way because you're still catching that many wild fish to grow these farmed fish. There are some there are some farmed fish that eat vegetarian, I suppose you'd say. (laughs) (laughs) So they're not they're not meat eaters and that kind of thing. And they can be better, but a lot of the toxins that they then, it depends on the fish farm. There are some greener ones out 
there. And that's the point. If you're going to eat fish and seafood to do your research about, yeah, about which ones you're eating. And especially, you know, some locations like in Melbourne, for example, squid in the bay is really prevalent. So if you want calamari and you can you know that you're getting local calamari from Port Phillip Bay, then great, go for your life because it doesn't have much bycatch when it's caught. It's um, There's a lot of it there. So you're not doing much damage, you know. So it's making yeah. those wise choices and finding out and asking questions. And a lot more people are understanding that. And fishmongers are passionate about keeping, you know, a lot of them are passionate about keeping the oceans alive. So they'll be hopefully happy to divulge that information to you if you ask the right questions. And now you said something before about tuna being endangered. Yeah, so don't eat tuna. Don't buy tuna. <laughs> Pretty so much it's, all it's tuna. All over, it's all over the supermarket, though. There's like shelves and shelves. I don't eat it because like, clearly I don't eat seafood. It's everywhere. And, you know, you, people eat it for lunch in their salads. They have it all no, the time. I know. And we're feeding it to our cats and our dogs like it's going out of business. And there's just not much of it there. Like I've been in West Africa last year in uh, Liberia and Gabon working on looking at these purse sign vessels, which are vessels that go out and they put fish aggregating devices in the water. They're these floating platforms that have like 40 metres of net floating underneath them and that attracts, it's like a artificial reef, I suppose, and it attracts small fish and then bigger fish and then tuna and sharks and even whale sharks and whatnot will, will swim around it. These legal fishing vessels have sonar equipment that floats next to these fishing aggregate devices or FADs that tells them how many tons of fish is swimming around it at that time. And they've got a computer screen hooked up and they might, they're allowed to have a hundred FADs out at any one time, 100. And that's all legal. And then they will look at their computer screen and one of the things will be flashing red. It's got 25 tons of fish floating around it. So they'll go out there and they'll cast this huge purse sign net around that whole area and they slowly drag that net in together and the fish in there start to panic and they hit each other and they are swimming around. There's blood everywhere and there might be a a whale in there. There's definitely sharks in there. And that net gets pulled and pulled and strangled tighter and tighter together. And when it's right next to the vessel, they put a scoop in the water and they scoop out all the fish and they're going for tuna and they are catching you know, hundreds and thousands of tons of tuna, but they're also catching, you know, thousands of tons of sharks and uh, rays and all turtles and all sorts of other beautiful animals that legally they have to put back. But by the time they put them back, they're pretty much dead. And we've got evidence of that, got lots of real footage of that happening. If anybody wants to see it, just type in Sea Shepherd purse sign vessel and you'll see what I'm talking about. So tuna is, it's endangered there. If you want to, I'll list the apps you can get that help Mm -hmm. you to to determine what fish to eat. So there's the seafood guide. I'm just opening it on my phone now, Sustainable Seafood Guide. And I think that's primarily for Australia. Yeah, Australia's Sustainable Seafood Guide. Then there's the Good Fish Guide Mm -hmm. is another really good one. And if you look at them, you can have a look at, you can type in tuna and you'll see that all tuna has red next to it, like don't eat it basically. But you can type in a different fish and it will tell you if it's farmed from this location it's green go for it if wild caught from this location it's orange it's you know have a think about it do you really want to eat it or do you have another choice if it's red try and stay away from it you know okay and that's really good want to preach to anyone and if you do eat we just want you to make the smart decisions and think that there are consequences to the things that we are doing exactly exactly if everybody just 
thought about what they were eating. I'm definitely not saying everybody has to go vegan or anything like that. Just think about what you're eating. And we've got all this information at our fingertips. We've got these apps that make it insanely easy to make better choices. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. This has been amazing. I've just got a couple of other questions. Now, when you were out near Africa, I know that you were chasing certain ships but I also know there's a lot of other dangerous ships out there. Did you come across any other danger while you were out there? Oh, are you talking about pirates? Yes. <laughs> Where we were in West Africa, Liberia and Gabon doesn't have any pirates. There's websites you can look up Pirate Watch and things like that, which will show you where the incidences of piracy are. And uh, Liberia and Gabon. I've seen that movie with Tom Hanks and that freaked me out. Yeah. Yeah. That was over on the East Coast. Yeah. So there are certainly places close by like Nigeria and Somalia that do have active pirates around. It's hard because a lot of those people became pirates because their livelihood of fishing was taken away from them by super trawlers you know these local fishermen could no longer go out and make enough money because super trawlers were coming in and taking all their fish so I also see it from the pirate side of view but obviously I wouldn't want to meet one face to face no (laughs) so we do have a piracy drill on board and we do prepare for that we have basically a system of what we would do if we were boarded by pirates what we need to do on the bridge if we see them coming and how how to move maneuver the vessel to try and stop them from coming on board and we have different things that we would do to making sure they don't get on board. And if they do get on board, we have a certain alarm that goes off and the crew will go to a particular area where they're safe. You know, we have protocols in place, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never saw anybody that I suspected of being a pirate vessel, but I know that the Ocean Warrior, when they were coming through the Red Sea, they did see a vessel that they suspected was a pirate vessel. It was just a small rib uh, with sort of eight men in it that were kind of looking a little bit shady, looking around. They didn't look like they had any fishing gear on board and they were kind of looking at these larger vessels that were going through the channel and the captain of the Ocean Warriors sort of said to everybody, called them up on the bridge and said, that's that's what you're looking for. They're unlikely to go for vessels that look like ours because we're not big container ships, we're fast. I don't think they've caught anything that goes faster than 14 knots ever or something like that. They're after different things than what we've got. You know, all we could give them is some vegan food and some vegan chockies. That's pretty much what we've got on offer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, okay. It's it's something you have to consider, but it's not something that I've been terribly concerned about. Mm-hmm. And have you seen a great white shark? I wish. No, oh, you I haven't, haven't seen them. <laughs> no, I've seen I've seen so many other beautiful, amazing animals, but I haven't seen a great white shark. I did see, I think it was a bronze whaler. We were traveling along up the west coast of Australia and there was this huge shark fin that all of a sudden was kind of cruising along beside us for ages. It was amazing. Usually you don't see them, but yeah, no, I haven't seen one of those gentle giants. Oh, gentle choice. <laughs> I just That's an that interesting in choice. <laughs> <laughs> <A> beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I have no intentions to ever go shark diving in those cages that they attract them and I have no intentions of that. But I would love to see one up on a very big ship where they're <laughs> far away. <laughs> that would be very cool. I would love to see those ones that jump out of the water in South Africa. They look amazing. I mean, I don't think I'd want to be in the water looking like a little seal, but I'd love to see that from a safe vantage point. <laughs> That's right. I would not want to be in the water in those cages where they come right up and uh little intimidating yeah (laughs) oh yeah yeah 
I really would encourage people to have a look at volunteering with Sea Shepherd. It is honestly, you've only heard a tiny fraction of the stuff that I've been able to do and get involved in. And there's so many roles on the ship. I think people worry that they don't have the skills or the expertise or the qualifications. Go and have a look at the website, have a look at the different teams, and you'll probably see one that really strikes your fancy. Does not matter what age you are, as long as you're over 18. Although we do have land-based campaigns where you can be, I think, 16 or even younger. You can also get involved in our marine debris side of things. So going to your local Sea Shepherd marine debris beach cleaner, getting involved in the different stalls. You can help us hold stalls at different events. Sea Shepherd goes to a lot of festivals and events and just talks to people about marine conservation. In any capacity that you have and any time that you have, you can definitely get involved in Sea Shepherd, even if you've only got one day a month that you can give. Obviously, for those that want the adventure of going out to sea and, and have a bit more availability, please have a look at the ocean going campaigns. Consider it because it's the best thing I've ever done in my life, honestly. Mm, it sounds like it. And it sounds like, do you feel like you've got like a whole new family? Yeah, absolutely. You get very close to people out at sea because you're relying on each other for your lives. Absolutely. And you're doing these intense activities and that kind of level of emotion and adventure brings people together. So I've definitely got a lot of lifelong friends from Sea Shepherd. Well, thank you so much for sharing today. And like Alexa said, if you are interested, I will put Sea Shepherd's details in the description below. Check it out and do anything you can to support them. They are amazing. I have a lot of their merchandise. I have their towel. I have their t-shirts. I have their jackets. They are really good clothes as well. So if, if you're just interested in doing it that way, I get a hoodie. It's so good. I love my hoodie. Awesome. Thanks, Michelle. I've really enjoyed our chat today. It's been, yeah, it's been excellent. Thanks so much for asking me to, to talk on your show. And I think what you do is fantastic as well. Just getting people inspired about travel and, and being productive and getting off the couch, stop watching TV and out there doing stuff. Yeah, stop watching Netflix. Go out yeah. and do things. Travel the world. <laughs> exactly. There's so much cool stuff to do. All right. Well, let's finish this so I can just go watch some Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much, Alexis, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on. And thank you for helping our marine life. And I wish you an amazing couple of years of being out there and doing what you do. Thanks, Michelle. It's an honor. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.